This Better Call Saul finale recap podcast is sponsored by True Car. They've got some useful tips for you that you might not be aware of, like how a coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean the interior of your car. You can also remove the excess weight from your car to improve its gas mileage. They say that you should not put gum into any sort of parking lot car reader and you can place your keychain remote right underneath your chin to increase its range here's another tip that you might not know about true car can also help you get a great deal on a used car what yes that's right true car is not just for buying a new car with the certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars you'll enjoy real pricing on the actual inventory and a simpler buying experience whether you buy new or used and with true car you can see what other people paid so you'll know if you're getting a good deal before you buy. You'll be more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience when you connect with a True Car certified dealer. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Better Call Saul season four is over, but we're just getting started on the Better Call Saul post show recap. And now here are the two guys who are listening to ABBA because they have a symmetrical name. People love symmetry. I am Rob Sister here with Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. There, birthday bell. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, Rob, I would like you to name a reading room at your home in my honor on my birthday. <laughs> yes, uh, that hopefully costs less than $23,000. Oh my gosh, yeah. Poor, uh, poor, poor Chuck McGill. What a, what a great legacy that is, a reading room. Fantastic. Yeah. Hey, it looked like uh, Howard seemed like uh, he thought it was a nice honor. Yeah, I thought I thought that was a uh, TV commercial, TV TV commercial for HHM. So here we are. Yeah, and here we are at the end of a. Uh, I, I thought it was a very fun finale. I've you know seen some uh, mixed reviews online from incredible to uh, that uh, the mic stuff was a drag, but I really enjoyed uh, last night's finale. I did too. And I thought it was a cap to a really good season of Better Call Saul. I don't know what people want, Rob. What do the people want? We literally saw the moment. We saw him become Saul Goodman. It's done. Mm-hmm. Like, this is happening. Now, of course, I say that and they'll do the thing they do where they pull the rug out from behind you and there'll be a problem with the paperwork and he won't actually register the name and then it won't happen for another season. But I think this is it. I think we saw the death of Jimmy McGill last night, along with other deaths, Rob, uh, which were very uncomfortable and which we'll talk about. But this is it. This is the moment people have been begging for since the beginning of this show. So I don't know what people want if they were disappointed by that. Perhaps there's backlash to the backlash and it's that backlash to the backlash that we're hearing. Who knows? Yeah, I think that the Jimmy stuff was probably universally uh, loved by people. And then uh, we have the Mike side of things, which I think was probably more polarizing. Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll definitely hash that out. We saw that part of the story coming, so I'm not sure what people expected to happen there, but uh, I'll definitely, I'm I'm interested to hear. I haven't seen a lot of the negative feedback, so I'm interested to hear what that sounds like and talk about it with you for sure. From the finale here in this episode, and then in about a week's time, Antonio and I will get together and answer your feedback questions. BCS at postshowrecaps.com if you want to send us an email. We'll also look at the comments on postshowrecaps.com and we'll uh, take uh, all of your questions that you guys might have for us. But I guess uh, let's let's talk about Jimmy and uh, a.k.a. Uh, Saul Goodman. 
He's DBA. DBA. Yeah, DBA Saul Goodman, a.k.a. DBA. This is uh, Jimmy McGill that we see one really final con here that he and Kim are pulling off. I think the problem is that the con got pulled on Kim a little longer. Uh, she became a, a, a person who was conned and not a person who was participating in it. And so that's a little rough for Jimmy. But him having to deal with Chuck and put Chuck front and center in his story is a large part of why he did not get reinstated last week, as we talked about. So it makes sense that that's what they would focus on here. I did not expect, and I think we probably should have been able to predict, that we might see Chuck McGill in a flashback in the cold open. Uh, Michael McKean can sing, Rob. I hope I hope everyone out there knows this. This guy's a talented performer for sure. Yeah, I knew, of course, that he was in Spinal Tap, but I didn't know that he was an accomplished singer. Yeah, I mean, I think he's the lead singer in Spinal Tap. I can't recall. I know he won a Grammy for one of the songs from A Mighty Wind, another Christopher Guest movie about folk music. And I believe he was nominated for an Oscar for a different song that he wrote from that movie. So this guy's got chops. He can play guitar. He can sing. He can really do it all. He looks a little bit like Triple H in Spinal Tap. So you might not recognize him as Chuck McGill, but uh, he's a talented guy. And this is a way to get him to sing on the show without really forcing it. I think it made sense. In the context of the story, flashing back to the day that Jimmy became a lawyer, passed the bar, Chuck stood there and vouched for him, uh, which had to be a lot for Chuck to swallow even to do that. And then we see the karaoke scene uh, really setting up the title of the episode, the theme of the episode, perhaps the theme of their entire relationship. The winner takes it all, Rob. Yeah, well, I thought that this was actually a very interesting moment to go back to because I don't think that we've ever seen in the history of the show a moment where the brothers were getting along as well. Definitely. This was definitely the high point of their relationship, I think, that we've seen on the screen. We've seen them running the con uh, together uh, on on poor. Every, I just I just remember like the highlights of their relationship are they ran a con together when Chuck was trying to pretend uh, that he wasn't ill and Rebecca was going to show up and they were going to have a big dinner together and the lights were going to be off because they couldn't have the power on. And then they showed a scene of the two of them as boys together in a tent when Chuck was being condescending to Jimmy, even then reading to him with a lantern. Uh, they, we, we've seen the, the low lows of their relationship for sure. Chuck coming to jail when Jimmy is guilty of the Chicago sunroof, bailing him out. So I think this is the happiest together that we've ever seen the two for sure. Yeah, I was really blown away to see Chuck performing the uh, karaoke song with Jimmy. I mean, I never would have imagined that he would do that because it looked like that not only did he sing the song, he also seemed to hung, hang out the rest of the night, put Jimmy to bed. ABBA is super hot right now, Rob. They were probably, uh, this is uh, taking advantage of some of that Mamma Mia, Mama Mia. for sure. Yeah, this is, uh, they're really striking while the iron is hot on the ABBA. Yeah, he took him to, he took him home, put him to bed. I think initially maybe he wasn't even going to stay. And then he looked at his watch and said, I forget it. I'm going to stay here and sleep in the bed with my brother as an adult. That was a very tender moment. I thought maybe the most tender we ever saw Chuck McGill tending to Jimmy in much the way that Jimmy we saw tend to Chuck throughout the course of season one, especially when Chuck was the one who was ailing. Jimmy was always there at his side in some cases because he caused it. But let's not talk about that. So we, we saw the role reversal a little bit there and just just a sweet moment. 
but the undercurrent of winner take it all and the there's a winner and a loser and all of that is certainly a predominant theme throughout the course of their story because we see right after the the flashback the next scene we see with Jimmy is Jimmy literally standing on Chuck's grave and faking sincerity faking emotion so this is a pretty dark episode of Better Call Saul in a lot of places because there is a troubled dead person at the center of this story and his death is being manipulated and and they're just trying trying to extract every ounce of grief from it that they can. So very rough, I think, in times. And I, I don't know. I, Kim is helping out with this, Rob. What? Why does she have any right to be upset in this episode? Because she's literally feeding and keeping Jimmy stoked while he is standing on Chuck's grave fake morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's part of this. And she's disappointed later. I thought that uh, the acting was really phenomenal the whole way through, but I was a little surprised that Kim was conned so hard by uh, Jimmy's testimony because uh, I felt like watching it, I mean, I didn't think that he was really feeling that way. Did you? I wasn't sure. I, I was a little conned in that I didn't feel like the put the letter away thing was rehearsed. I And maybe he did do that in the moment. Like maybe he didn't come in that door with that plan. I think there are probably some people out there speculating that that was his plan all along. That as soon as he says to Kim, hey, let's use Chuck's letter. Then because he's already come home, he's coming home from HHM. He's sad. He's going to use the letter. He uses the letter. He puts it away. I didn't think that was his plan. I think he decided to do that in the moment. Yeah, I thought that he even says that that was he said, you know, I could tell they weren't buying the letter. So I I was like, I was a god. I was improvising up there. So I, I felt like that he was off script in that moment. Maybe Kim felt like, oh, he's off script and this is now the genuine Jimmy coming out. Yeah. And if I had to argue for why she has the right to be upset in the moment, I think this moment of clarity, if that was what it was, which we know it wasn't, we know it was a con. But I think if she were to think that it was a moment of clarity, that it was a moment that he realized everything that Chuck had meant to him and why the loss was significant and what that, how that had impacted his life. This is a breakthrough, essentially a therapeutic breakthrough. He's talking it through and we're seeing it happen and play out. This is what Kim has wanted for Jimmy all along that she's seen Jimmy dragged down by this and she's talked to Jimmy and told him to go see somebody and to talk it out. She watched as Jimmy told Howard it was his cross to bear. She's seen Jimmy be dark about this throughout the course of the whole season. When the letter was first read, when the letter first came up, And she brought it to him. Jimmy reads the letter. Kim got very emotional about it. And she walked away and shut the door in his face, much how we saw her shut the door uh, to her office in his face later. Shuts the door in his face and she's with herself about her emotions about that letter. And Jimmy is just like, oh, yeah, oh, Chuck, write a hell of a letter. He's not upset about it at all. So I think all along she has wanted to see Jimmy process this a little bit. And I think in the moment, maybe she thought that Jimmy was actually processing it and that this would represent something new for him, a way up that they wouldn't no longer they would no longer be down in the on the bottom or always down. Like she said, that now that he was embracing this and facing it this would be a good jimmy i just don't i mean i if she's the kind of person who is okay with exploiting chuck's death Hmm. i don't know why she expects that that we should expect something good out of jimmy like she's encouraging him to be as dirty as he can possibly be so what does she really want i'm not sure well i do find that 
Kim is probably way more inconsistent with what she wants as opposed to uh, Jimmy, who I feel like is, you know, you, you know, basically he'll, he'll go wherever she wants to go. But I think that, you know, he's never expressed any sort of, you know, uh, illusions about who he is, at least in, in my mind. I think that's part of the problem. And it came up during their big fight on the rooftop last week is that when she quote unquote gets bored is what Jimmy calls it. That's when she comes down and rolls around with Jimmy in the mud. But she is always capable of receding or retreating to her her high horse uh, or some distant place that doesn't involve being in the mud. And so it is that half in half out or okay with it in the in the moment but later regretful of it or looking down on it that jimmy had a problem with when he was yelling at her on top of the roof about the things she was yelling at him about he was basically saying like oh you're you're happy to come down here and and screw around and do bad things when you're bored but you're going to judge me for it otherwise i don't think that's right you just think i'm a bad person and that's that so there there is some element of that where she's indecisive and she's being pulled in different directions but i think she has a lot more agency than that i don't I don't want to not give her the credit that she deserves. The idea to go work Lubbock was her idea. Some of these things mm-hmm. are absolutely her idea and her agency. I, I am meant to believe, I think, and what's your take on this? I think we're meant to believe that the whole scam involving the library, involving the scholarship, all of these are probably her plan points because this is the the, the play that she's executing. Jimmy wants to set the judges' chambers on fire, Rob, and <laughs> yeah. Kim is saying, "No, here's our plan." This and that is was what kind of the do. story that Huel ended up uh, trying to tell people. So Jimmy seems obsessed with saving people from a fire. Right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Maybe that's all that we need to do. Right. Yeah. I, that's a good point. This is a, this is a through line. We could, we could get to this. Uh, Chuck died in a fire. So maybe that's oh, why. Wow. Like maybe Jimmy is just constantly hoping that uh, somebody should have saved Chuck. Maybe this is Freudian on some level, or this is some deep seated issue because of what happened with Chuck. Now fire is going to follow Jimmy around. Uh, it's a distinct possibility, but that's regardless. Deep. Yeah, who knows? Uh, I, you got to get into the psyche of Jimmy McGill. It's not a good place to be. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's what Kim's problem is. But I, I, I'm meant to believe that this was Kim's. Uh, this was Kim's plan, and the plan itself is just depraved. Like it's a, it's a very dark plan that involves fake mourning throughout, literally standing on and exploiting Chuck McGill's grave so that Jimmy can be seen as sincere. Uh, I don't know how you make that plan and then later are disappointed when he's not actually sincere yeah why is it so important to kim that jimmy shows remorse in some way or some sort of like uh you know bad feeling about how he loved his brother why why is that just because that this is a a human being that she is in love with and she uh, wants to uh, you know in some way know that he's not a monster that has no emotions I definitely think that's a big part of it. A a lot of what happens with Kim, I feel like, is Kim not wanting to be burned or not wanting to be the one that's being lied to or being angry at herself in some instances for expecting something different. Uh, It's a fool me twice scenario. I think on some level, Jimmy has basically said and accused her of looking at him in a certain way, just looking at him like the guilty person, looking at him like the kind of lawyer that guilty people hire, being a criminal. And I, Kim, throughout has looked at Jimmy as Jimmy and she says before they go into that room Jimmy no matter what happens I'm with you and I what happens then in that moment is something that I think causes Kim to maybe regret 
being with him or it's like looking into the eyes of the person that you love and seeing there's a monster there is I think what happens to Kim on a lot of occasions. And he's warned her that he's a monster. He's accused her of calling him a monster. So I think she's maybe wanted to back off of those feelings a little bit. But the truth of the matter is that is what's there. There's a dark side to Jimmy McGill. And I think she's disappointed mainly that she feels conned by that, that she feels conned that she sees the humanity in him instead of that monster. And he's just showing that monster to the world, calling the lady sweetheart, saying, I'm going to change the name without even really talking to her about it, even though that's something that he brought up in the past. She seems upset by this. I think the big moment is. He says, did you see that a-hole crying? And Kim was crying. Like, yeah. So what does she feel like if he's laughing at the people who were actually moved by his remarks and she was one of them? So I think that's a, a huge part of this. I just think she's mostly disappointed that maybe he's right about the fact that she can see him as a criminal or he's right about the fact that he's got some darkness in him. And she probably feels disappointed and let down by the mistakes that she's making uh, in trying to navigate her way through this wreck of a human being. Yeah, he was also being super loud uh, in the courthouse, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like <laughs> it's like the Willie Mays Hayes in Major League. Like, don't <laughs> celebrate that you made the team. Like, go outside the locker room at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was uh, really carrying on. It's funny, I'm so confused about where this story is going for Kim. Because like, I think we kind of can tell where it's going for Jimmy at this point, you know, or Saul Goodman now officially at this point. But when this show comes back in season five, I mean, is this relationship have any chance of moving forward? It's a good question. The answer ultimately lies with Kim, I think. And Kim is really, I, I, like I said, I think it's a fool me twice scenario. I think she's in a position now where Jimmy has told her that she treats him a certain way. And she's, I think, been comfortable with saying, I don't treat you that way. I see you as Jimmy. I, I don't see you that way. But everything that Jimmy is doing is causing her to see him that way. And he's sort of manifesting his own, his, the, the belief in her, uh, that, that the, her belief that he is the way he is. And that's got to be rough because I think she wants to resist feeling that way because Jimmy is accusing her of something she didn't feel like she was doing. I, I do think she wants to resist that because she doesn't want to be guilty of the thing that she said that he said she was guilty of, but he's giving her no reason not to be that way. And with Jimmy McGill, of course, you have to consider that maybe this is a guy who's been told that he is a POS so long, mm-hmm. including by his brother, Chuck repeatedly that he can't be blamed for acting like one. Like maybe it's not his fault because he's been dumped on so much. Kim makes that speech on Jimmy's behalf to Chuck at one point, I believe in season two, but certainly she has stood by his side and and really stood up for him in the past and said those very things like you treat him like such a, a criminal. You treat him like such garbage. How do you expect him to act when you treat him that way? So you know that she's sensitive to that. And I think her sensitivity to that, is what is causing her to give him so much rope that he's repeatedly hanging himself with it and hoist by his own petard, I guess is at the end of the day what that is, Rob. Yeah, there's a lot of that uh, going around. A lot of that going around, yeah, since the days of Shakespeare, for sure. But ultimately, I do think that's a huge part of it. 
is that she doesn't want to be party to the very thing that he's accused her of and that she knows that other people have done to him, which is only seeing the darkness or the negative side of him and not seeing what she knows is the good guy, the guy who sings her songs from South Pacific on her answering machine, the guy who she shared so much with and who has been a decent person throughout their relationship to her on many occasions, uh, probably, I think, as a baseline. Uh, He's not really been a dick to her as a baseline. He's been a good person. So... I don't know. The story of them is that they drifted apart a ton this season. She said at the end of last episode, you know, Jimmy said, I messed all this up. Right. And she says, well, do you still want to be a lawyer? Jimmy says, yes. And Kim says, well, we can start from there. Well, look where that start is now, Rob. Like, look how it started. It did not start well. So I don't think it will end well. Yeah. Now, on that note of it not ending well, do you feel like that if there is some sort of a Jimmy and Kim breakup in season five, and then as we're talking about this, you know, my mind is racing a little bit. I am wondering that, you know, uh, Jimmy McGill, a.k.a. Saul Goodman, he I don't think he's a good breaker upper. Do you think that the relationship between uh, Saul and Kim could turn vindictive and Jimmy or Saul may aim to ruin Kim coming up in season five. God, man, Whew, you're dark. Like, uh, take a hey, breather. I'm not dark. Know. I'm not dark. Dude. <laughs> but, but, but Saul Goodman is. I mean, this is the same guy yeah. who can't, you know, express an ounce of remorse. And if he feels wronged by Kim, if he feels like, oh, she never saw me the way that I wanted to be seen. She always had this idea about me. Well, you know, I could play hardball too. Does he, you know, set out to, you know, uh, poison the well on Mesa Verde or any number of things that could happen. Oh my gosh. You're right. I mean, he's dark enough that if he really leans into his darkness, he could do some things to push her away and punish her. You could foresee just look how he turned on Chuck, right? Exactly. With the 1216, 1261 and pushing him down in the recording and then everything that happened in this is the very same room that we we find ourselves in at the end of this episode. And he loved his brother. He loved his brother, took care of him, doted on him, went out every morning, went to the grocery store for him, really did try to protect him and shield him against people like the doctors and the outside influences. It really did stand up for him, didn't have him committed, did all the things that Chuck wanted him to do, but he wanted to be a little bit of himself and even that little bit upset Chuck. So their relationship was always untenable. But he really did stick up for Chuck. Uh, But he put Kim ahead of Chuck at the end of the day. The thing with Mesa Verde was because of Kim. Jimmy stuck his neck out because of Kim. I think everything that happened with the full going south of the the Chuck and Jimmy relationship was because of Kim. Uh, It also had a lot to do with Jimmy finding out that Chuck was the reason that he could never get hired at at HHM. But uh, the Kim part was the was the real inciting incident. The Mesa Verde, the the the. 1216 and all the chicanery that happened with regard to that was because of Kim. That's what he says on the tape that Chuck makes is that at the end of the day, like I just wanted to do this for her. Like you couldn't let her have it. It wasn't right that you did this sort of thing. So it was because of Kim. Now we're saying that person that he put even ahead of Chuck in his life, could he treat her the same way? It's absolutely possible that he could treat her the same way. 
I don't like the idea that it could happen. Uh, that takes it down a really dark path. But we have to get down that dark path to a certain extent. You're right. So what does that look like? I don't know. He may end up pushing her away because she won't go away on her own. I'd like to think that she has the agency. But again, as I've said, she finds herself in that very complicated position where she doesn't want to validate the negative energy that he is generating around himself. She doesn't want to make him right about the fact that she looks down on him. She doesn't want to become what she accused Chuck of being in terms of the way he treated Jimmy. So she's in a very tough spot in terms of not wanting to be negative in his life and wanting to do right by Jimmy McGill. And he could just push her away as a result of that. So we could see that they're already pretty far gone. It won't take much if she doesn't walk away. Uh, then he may push her away for sure. Because we are about, what, four years away from the events of uh, Breaking Bad, or I guess maybe five years or four and a half years away from at least the introduction of Saul Goodman into the Breaking Bad universe. So uh, he is still a a different guy than we're seeing at the end of this episode. So he uh, really still needs to uh, change more into uh, in the negative way to become the person we see in the second season of Breaking Bad. And it seems like what could cause that. We've already seen that the death of Chuck caused him to behave a certain type of way this season. He really slipped more into the criminal underworld. He really saw through the idea that anyone would ever treat him differently. Uh, And he really was disappointed by all that and feels, I think, a a largely responsible. The self-loathing meter is through the roof with Jimmy McGill this season. Uh, We saw that a poor, unfortunate victim of that was the scholarship student. Mm-hmm. who made the mistake of being the the criminal outlier in the group of applicants and making Jimmy feel like these people in that ivory tower that he was with in that room would only ever see him as a criminal. And that was that it triggered him in such a way. He's carrying so much of that negative energy around with him. It doesn't take much, I think, to put him on that plane. And now he's riding the high. Now he feels a little bit bulletproof because he just managed to pull that off. So who knows what happens next, Rob? He may fire the ambassador to the UN. Did you think that he really connected with the scholarship girl that I couldn't get a good read as she was walking away? She's like, yeah, this guy's making a lot of sense or this guy's a total creep. I got to get out of here. Yeah, it was more the latter for me. She looks back and I'm like, don't follow me to this bus, please. Uh, I didn't think she took that well. And how could she? That is a really rough thing to have an adult in a position of influence tell you is that your life is going to be defined by this one mistake when you made by your th- when you were 13, which, by the way, it, he's wrong about that. Like he is absolutely wrong about this. She has no way of knowing that what she's hearing is a lot of his negative energy and his angst but on the other hand like what she is ultimately hearing from him is that your life is ruined because of a mistake you already made and your only choice is going to be that you have to embrace it and turn to the dark side he's giving her the turn to the dark side speech she has every opportunity to to do right by this mistake she will not be defined by this mistake when she's 30 when she's 35 it's not going to be that way uh but she he's she's not hearing that from him so i don't think he connected with her in any way i think it's uh get out of my face you creep why are you screaming this at me i'm very upset i'm going back to my bus now goodbye you know just to tie that conversation with christy esposito back to the beginning of the episode uh, jimmy recites the line again the winner takes it all. Did you find any significance in the lyrics of the ABBA song? 
Well, I think so. The 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 winner of the Jimmy and Chuck battle, in many respects, I think people would say is Jimmy because Jimmy gets to be a lawyer again. Chuck ultimately wanted Jimmy to get disbarred, didn't want him to be a lawyer. And Jimmy has won. Jimmy's a lawyer. But I think the real winner is Chuck because Chuck is right about Jimmy. Uh, Chuck is right that Jimmy's going to be willing to cut any corner, exploit any circumstance, alienate any person uh, to do what Jimmy wants to do, that he is slipping Jimmy at his core. And Chuck has always said, always said that and that he was bad for the law. And Chuck is right about that. Chuck is a winner because of what happens with Jimmy, because Jimmy is willing to exploit, because Jimmy is willing to push Kim away, because Jimmy is so focused on himself that he's losing the best thing about his life. Uh, Chuck is right about this things. So Chuck is the one who's right, even as it seems like Jimmy is winning. I think there is, I think there is, uh, there is some, some significance to the lyrics. I, Jimmy is encouraging Chuck to sing and says, that's you. And Chuck says the loser, like Chuck sings the lyric, the loser after Jimmy says, that's you. And it's, so it's a little on point in or a little on the nose in many respects, but I think ultimately that Chuck is the winner here because Chuck was right about Jimmy all along. And even though Chuck doesn't win in terms of Jimmy not being a lawyer, Chuck wins in terms of him being right about Jimmy, that Jimmy is it tried to, I think, be, be different or say that he should be different, but Chuck's right about Jimmy. And I think in many respects, Chuck's right about Jimmy because he told Jimmy for so long that this is the way it was. And he treated Jimmy that way. And he kept Jimmy under his boot for so long that Jimmy thinks he belongs there. But Chuck was still right. I mean, Jimmy is reek at this point, Rob, like he's been emotionally beaten down into a position where he thinks he deserves and should act the way that the person who was beating him down suggested that he should or, or was, or was part of. So this is, this is who he is now in part because of Chuck, but Chuck was right. So I think Chuck is the winner. So there's a couple of lyrics in addition to the chorus that I think uh, really stand out as it. I'm looking through it. And I'm not I'm not going to sing it like uh, Chuck McGill, but uh, there's uh, a stanza of I was in your arms thinking I belong there. I figured it made sense. Building me a fence, building me a home, thinking I'd be strong there. But I was a fool. Playing by the rules, which is, you know, echoing that conversation with uh, Christy Esposito. And then uh, also, uh, but tell me, does she kiss like I used to kiss you? Does it feel the same when she calls your name somewhere deep inside? You must know I miss you. But what can I say? Rules must be obeyed. So thematically, there's a lot of like talking about like playing by the rules versus not playing by the rules. And then there's another part. Uh the judges will decide the likes of me abide spectators of the show always staying low the game is on again a lover or a friend a big thing or small the winner takes it all so we're talking about judges and rules and so I spectators of the show and the game being on again that's a Monday night airtime for Better Call Saul <laughs> by talking about Monday night football yeah so thematically <laughs> I think there's a lot there yeah, definitely. For sure. I mean, there's a reason they picked that song. I haven't had and a chance name to the listen. episode, the winner, the winner. I haven't had a chance to listen to the insider podcast. I know that they have an interview with the music supervisor on this week's episode of the insider podcast from AMC. So I'm sure they get into the song choice. Uh, it is right on point there. I can't say the same for Ernie's total eclipse of the heart, Rob. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was just fun. For How sure. old is nice Ernie? Uh, I thought that Ernie yeah. was like an intern in the better Call Saul timeline. 
Ernie is a thousand years old, Rob. He is an undead <laughs> vampire. Uh, yeah, so this he is, doesn't age. This is what it is? He doesn't age. No, his name is. His, oh, I his wish I could have what he's having. <laughs> Stay out of the sun, Mike. I keep telling you. Uh, yeah, no, Ernie Lestat is his middle name. So this is it. He's a vampire. <laughs> Yeah, that's just, that's a throwback uh, to the time when Ernie was singing karaoke. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they picked the song for sure. I don't know at what point they wanted to use the song. Peter Gould, uh, the showrunner of Better Call Saul, the creator of the Saul Goodman character, he tweeted something really cool, which was their index card storyboard from this episode. Uh, and they they they're definitely parts of that that uh, that are on that are very clear that they they let they led with winner takes it all. Like you can see that on the cards that that is mm-hmm. something that they made the choice to do. it. And if you read through there are some things which are less clear that aren't spelled out in those cards throughout the course of the episode or that are different than what we saw in the final version of the episode. This seemed to be a clear choice from early on with regard to what they were doing here. So it definitely seemed like uh, something they were picking for that reason. And it does, it does. I mean, it plays out the, the struggle between the two of them, the sibling rivalry between the two of them, uh, there was a winner and a loser. And it seems like the person who died is the loser. But I think he's ultimately the one in the right. And that is very in keeping with Chuck always being right. He's right about Jimmy McGill. Uh, and I don't think Jimmy's happy about that. But he's at, at this point, I think, just embracing it. Yeah, my brother was right about me. What's your point? I'm a dick. I'm an asshole. Like, I'm a bad guy. And you're you're wrong for liking me, Kim. So I'm just going to be a bad guy. And that's that. And so Chuck was right about that. And I think that's the that's the footnote for me is the, the winner takes it all. But uh, but I think Chuck really ultimately is the one who was right by the end of the day. Now. What was your reaction to uh, seeing Chuck here in the flashback? Great. Uh, this, I, I mean, I like the way they use Michael McKean uh, in this season. They got a lot of uh, juice out of the squeeze of having him in that Howard's End flashback uh, at the beginning of mm-hmm. uh, the episode where they showed the Oscars. He was just enough of a jerk to Jimmy to remind you that this is the guy he was. He had always been to Jimmy. Uh, this was, I think, much better because it was it was a tender moment. And there was even some talk like I'd like to see him talk to the ladies. I think Jimmy says to Kim. So I think this must have been an ask. After Rebecca left, but before Chuck's illness onset, mm-hmm. uh, we know Chuck didn't have the illness. He's out in public. He's hanging out, turning the lights on and off at Jimmy's place. So I don't know what, how long of a window that was, but, uh, but this is something that that was a, a moment in time and it was a nice moment to see. I hope they continue to use Michael McKean. Uh, he's a, a good presence on this show. Honestly, my reaction after that cold open was they should find a way to get Michael McKean back on the show, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I don't, I don't like the idea. We're going to have a walking dead crossover. Like this isn't going to work, but I really like seeing him and having him. It's a, it's a great dynamic for Jimmy. Uh, it's one, the show has done so well with, and I think having him was uh, really valuable in this final episode for sure. Yeah. I thought it was tense also where it's like, Oh, what's going to go wrong where I did feel, like that uh there was uh something ominous with with the two of them definitely you just wonder when is the other shoe gonna drop like i thought when jimmy was laying on that bed drunk Mm -hmm. he was gonna say something or that chuck was gonna say something to jimmy knowing jimmy might not remember it in the morning i thought there was gonna be a a, a, something big that came out at that point uh some big shared emotional moment between the two of them i think it's a good beat that it was played differently that it was uh more low-key that it was a shared nice moment between them singing the song in the bed and everything that happened there it was 
wasn't a major emotional moment that played out there, but I did expect something to happen for sure. Well, especially when Jimmy was pushing the issue with the HHMM, I thought Chuck was going to say, ha! That you think that your name is going to be on the door? Uh, you must be insane. I, I thought we were going to get something, uh, but I thought Chuck had really good bedside manner with Jimmy. Just sort of like, hey, you know, ah, uh, uh, okay. And he even he even agreed with him about his points about six nipples. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that was so. Yeah, it was absolutely he. He was being nice to him for one of the one of the few times we've seen him be really overtly nice. So to you've Jimmy never been sure. making more sense than you are right now. Exactly. Uh, that was even funny. So it was a, it was a good moment for sure. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about anything else with uh, Jimmy and Chuck and Kim? Or do you want to talk about uh, Mike and Werner and Gus <laughs> and Lalo? Oh, I, I really want to put off this Werner talk for as long as possible because my heart is still a little broken. Uh, speaking of uh, total eclipse of the heart, Wolf, uh, I, I just, I, I really, <laughs> I think that was the death of Jimmy McGill uh, in that car when he breaks down emotionally after everything that happened with the scholarship committee, passing one of his greatest hits in the dented garbage can uh, in the elevator uh, area at HHM's parking garage. And then his car doesn't start. He, he really breaks down there and has that massive emotional moment before he comes back home and says like, Hey, let's try the letter. I think that was the last of Jimmy McGill. I think that was the emotional gasp uh, breathing out of him. Uh, And we saw him finally break down and let all of the stress of all of this out. Uh, And I I think that's it. I mean, I I do think that's it because the guy we saw in that courtroom, especially after totally different guy, totally dead inside, totally not cognizant of what was happening with Kim riding too high. Saul Goodman, like it's over. Like, I think that was the last we're going to, that's the last of Jimmy McGill. Like I said, the show is always about stops and starts and it's not a binary process. We don't flip a switch and say, now he's Saul Goodman. But I think that was, the last real emotional uh, gasp of Jimmy McGill there in that parking garage. And I think even the Jimmy McGill that we'll see in the future, is just going to be a little more dead inside as a result of everything that happened in this episode. So pretty rough, pretty rough to watch. Uh, and there, there's not just one death though, Rob, in this episode, there's a bigger death and a much more emotional death in many respects. Right. The, you know, we have the figurative death with uh, Jimmy McGill, but also, you know, I think that this was a point of no return for Mike in this episode. And we had speculated about, you know, Mike is going to be asked to do something uh, with these Germans. Uh, we thought it might be Kai. We, uh, you know, talked about could it be all of the Germans, perhaps? Ultimately, it ends up being Werner. Uh, I think that Mike ends up uh, much more reluctantly having to uh, cross a line uh, than uh, Jimmy, who, you know, is uh, more exuberant about the line that he has to cross. You know, Mike does everything in his power to save Werner's life. And ultimately, uh, that he a line is crossed where, you know, Mike can no longer save him. Right. And Mike can no longer save him without Mike jeopardizing Mike's life. And at that point, Kaylee's life, Stacy's life, this Gus, Gus Fring's the kind of guy as he is directly revealing in this episode who has no problem taking family members and putting them squarely in the crosshairs if he has to. So it doesn't become an issue of Werner or Gus or Werner or not. It becomes an issue of Werner or Mike. And so Mike has to submit to what Gus wants to do. And Mike is the kind of guy that is, 
is knows it was his mistake and probably doesn't want somebody else to have to do this because of a mistake that Mike made. So Mike's willing to own it and, and is going to wear that as a result of his mistake. But at the end of the day, it is Mike's mistake. It is Mike having to own it. And it is Mike having to cross this bridge for sure. And he's not happy about it. As you point out, he tries to negotiate and bargain with Gus on multiple occasions. He, I think when he sees Gus at the end of the episode in the lab, uh, shows Gus that he is not at all pleased with what happened, but that he is there willing to do whatever's next. So he is not going to make a big deal out of being forced to do something that uh, is ultimately so repulsive or so upsetting. Um, Werner also, I think, came to grips with how this had to play out. Werner took it like a took it like a person who knew that he put himself in the crosshairs a little took bit. Took him a minute. He took him a minute. He went through the seven stages of grief, but hmm. he ended up with acceptance uh, for sure. And I thought that was a that was a pretty uh, pretty strong move on Werner's part to be able to take this like uh, the, the way he did. I don't want to say take it like a man, but uh, to take this like uh, like somebody who knows that he ultimately put himself in this position and that there was no other option and that, that he put everybody else jeopardized his wife, jeopardized Mike, jeopardized his men. Uh, once he knew his wife was safe, his men were going to be safe uh, and he knew there was no other way this was it uh, we saw we, we it's funny because you contrast Werner to somebody like Walter White uh, we've seen Walter in a similar position uh, where the death warrant was signed for Walter White and he's bargaining with Mike and saying I can I want to talk to Fring just let me talk to Fring and I can I can explain to him what ha- what's going on here what's happening and Mike's like that's not going to happen you know and Walter has already outflanked the plan. Walter has uh, a plan in place via Jesse and uh, via Gail Bedecker that puts Walter in a little bit better position than Werner. Werner did not outflank. Werner was relying on Mike's ultimate humanity to save him here, not realizing, I think, about the lack of humanity in Gus Fring uh, was ultimately signing his death warrant the minute he walked out of that place. So... Very rough, very rough to watch. Uh, what did you think about Mike's uh, caper, though, with the with the chewing gum, Rob? Like, uh, <laughs> well, this is pretty good. I was really wondering uh, where it was going. And I guess, could you maybe explain, uh, you know, we saw Lalo have the conversation with Hector in the previous episode. And, uh, you know, uh, Lalo tells Nacho, oh, boy, same old Hector. He wants to kill everybody. And... You know, uh, Lalo was, you know, hot on the trail, but I wasn't sure exactly why the Lalo uh, kill switch was uh, set to such a urgent level. We didn't hear that conversation with Hector. Uh, not, not, he asked Nacho to go away and we certainly went away. We heard the bell ring a few times and we heard what Lalo said afterwards, mm-hmm. but we don't really know. Uh, we don't really know. What I just thought that Lalo went from reconnaissance very quickly to sort of, uh, you know, instigating a hot war with uh, the uh, Gus side of the cartel. Yeah. I don't know why he was willing to kill and willing to create public mayhem in order to continue to track Mike. I don't know why that was that valuable. I understand why he wanted to track Mike. Uh, He was doing the recon, like you said. Uh, He was sketching out the plot of the land. He was sketching the roads in and out. Um, He was writing down the people that were coming in and out. He sees them all leave the compound. Clearly, he follows them to when Gus meets up with Mike. And I understand at that point why he wants to trail Mike. He thinks Mike is up to something. He wants to know what's going on with Mike. And that all makes sense. 
But what doesn't make sense is the the limits that he's willing to go to in order to uh, continue to trail Mike. Then again, Rob, this guy's a Salamanca. Like this guy's mm-hmm. a, this guy's a nut. They like, have no chill. They have no chill. They go from zero to a hundred. And so we know that if this guy hasn't been involved previously, maybe he's been on the sidelines because he's a little bit of a wild boy. And we see that come out when he's in this episode, running, running, running people out of the parking garage, killing poor Fred Weasley at the coffee or at the, at the Western union place. Like that really felt bad for the Western union kid. Yeah. Well, what, how did you feel about Lala going to uh, going uh, John McClane and doing the, the stealing move there? That was a little OTT for me. <laughs> you thought that was OTT. I saw a, a lot of pushback against that on social media and on Reddit. A lot of people uh, calling out Lalo for being Batman. It was fun. Like, I I just, I laughed and I love Lalo. He's got some great moments in this episode, like where he's calling Werner on the phone and asking him about the, what's going on and sussing out this information. And Mike picks up the phone and he says, Michael, is that you? It's just so good. Like the guy that plays Lalo is in control. It's great. But that moment was just so like, that is the show gets a few moments like that and has had a few moments like that. And certainly within the context of breaking bad, there are a couple of over the top moments like that. Uh, you're talking about a show that puts a machine gun in a trunk and then deals with it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about a show that uh, has a certain kind of explosive ending with one storyline. Like there are these moments for sure that are over the top. And so it doesn't necessarily not fit within the course of that. It just was over the top for me again, mostly because I don't understand why he wanted to kill this kid he's just a, he's just crazy i guess i mean maybe there is a little bit of red viper in this guy like you said do we know officially that uh the western union kid was dead uh that i uh, did uh you know he was on, definitely on the floor but did we see any marks could he have just been passed out the uh the that's a good point i think the way his, his foot looked uh looked dead to me he didn't look like <laughs> a passed out kid but um i will say if you look at the peter gold storyline that i or the storyboard that i referenced earlier yeah, he's dead one of one of the cards says uh, you know, Lalo walks out of the building with blood on his face and black smoke emanating from the building. Mm. It's like clearly they dialed that back. Uh, they dialed that back. So if they dialed that back, then uh, maybe uh, maybe they didn't ultimately decide how that was going to, you know, maybe they, maybe they didn't want to make it as overt as that. So maybe they wanted to leave open that the kid might be alive. Uh, either way, it seems like an extreme action to take for sure. I like the contrast. The mic is also social engineering right mike is all making phone calls talking about his brother playing can you emotional. help me my yeah. brother-in-law needs his medicine uh, i can't help you i'm sorry like it's not gonna happen uh no i can't tell you it's company policy can't do it all right yeah, then, well will you just give me the number of the hospital oh please watch the video with me yeah let's do this <laughs> Yeah, so Mike, 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 making emotional appeals. Lalo is just crawling through the ceiling uh, and taking the kid out. So two very, uh, two very effective. Uh, yet well, Lalo very tries. Approaches. Lalo's like, uh, yeah. oh, but he told me to ask you. He's like, oh, I don't think so. Okay, well now you're dead. Right, exactly. Well, and you know, who knows? Mike is an older guy. Uh, maybe the maybe the guy trusts him a little more. Uh, Lalo maybe uh, comes in a little bit hot. I mean, he did have the gun visible in his waistband. I don't know if the kids saw it, mm-hmm. but he's not exactly trying to cut a sympathetic figure. This Lalo. Do you feel like that Mike's move, uh, where he was getting out of the parking garage, uh, was that especially cathartic for Mike? Because as a 
human uh, toll booth worker? Did he uh, have any animosity towards the automated uh, toll booth system? <laughs> I mean, who would know better than Mike how to scam this kind of system? For sure, uh, this is. It's funny to think that he might want. To, he might literally want to rage against the machine, but at the very least, he certainly knew how to take it out. Uh, I like that he had the gum right next to the gun. Like these are two plans that I might have to execute. I well, might need a gun, and I might have to chew some gum up and ruin a machine. Maybe Mike has all of his stuff organized alphabetically. <laughs> and gun, gum, gum. Com, comes right, <laughs> right before exactly. gun. And it's in the glove box, so the gloves are probably in there. This is good. Yeah, I like Today's this episode of Better Call Saul is brought to you by the letter G. <laughs> <laughs> and the number 5 Yeah, this is uh, certainly possible. Certainly possible. I also, like words with G are Gus... Germany. <laughs> gun, gum, Gale. and gus. Yeah, Gail. This is great. We're really plunging into the depths of the psyche of the writers here. We had the fire rescues and the multiple G terms in Mike's world. So this is good. Yeah. So was Mike's failure here really to uh, just drive home the point? I mean, he sort of like danced around it. You talked about how that he was more carrot than stick with Werner, but he tried to tell Werner like we're dealing with very serious people. Okay. You know, he's not telling him that you will be killed if you try anything. He didn't tell him that. However, it seems shocking to Werner to like, Oh, I'm going to die now. Yeah. Oh, you don't trust me like this. Whoop. Michael, I, I, this is no big whoop. My friend Michael will do. Will, will def- oh, why is it Russian? I'm not I don't know. <laughs> My friend Michael will defend me. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I sound like the count from Sesame Street. Um, yeah. This, <laughs> uh, but at the end of the day, I don't know. Like he should have known better. Like the French guy that came in, he's talking about the drug cartel. He knows this isn't secret. Werner knows this is all heavily secret. He doesn't probably know it's a methamphetamine lab, like we said, but he knows Gus Fring is the boss. He knows he rarely sees Gus Fring and he knows that Mike isn't the be all end all on this project. So why he thought that Mike being his friend would bail him out on this uh, is beyond me. Uh, but he, this is the same guy, Rob, who this all happened because he messed up his timeline. This all happened because he thought it would take a lot less than it did. So poor Werner is probably just not the kind of guy who was capable of getting this done the correct way. I think he, we found out he was sort of desperate uh, because he was living in his, fa- you know, his father's shadow to an extent. I think sort of desperate for recognition, desperate for a little bit of uh, respect or love. Uh, maybe he gets that from his wife and not having that put him in a really rough spot. I still blame Mike. I don't know why Mike couldn't just let them take a break. I don't know why it couldn't be three or four days. And that's that. Why couldn't his wife be brought in by blindfold into, uh, into the warehouse? I don't understand why all that couldn't have happened. That's the part that for me feels a little frustrating about this whole story. It feels like Mike wrote the death certificate for Werner before Werner ever escaped because Mike put him in this position. And I think that's is in part because Mike is a little dead inside. And the issues that we saw throughout the course of the season with Mike in the, the, 
grief group and Mike in the relationships that he's had um, pushing Anita away. Uh, I think Mike is a little bit dead inside. And so Mike didn't really respect Werner's need for this emotional bond uh, because Mike doesn't really have it or doesn't respect it in his own way or doesn't want to credit that as important because if he acknowledges that it's important, then he's got to let it into his own life too. And that's just not something that he's done. So the fact that he didn't do it ultimately, I think is why Werner leaves. Uh, Werner believes that it will be fine. It's not fine. Uh, so it's, uh, it's still Mike's fault. It's still Werner's fault. Like they're, they're both have blood on their hands uh, for Werner's death for sure. Because Werner is under the incorrect assumption that he can, you know, fly the coop and then come <laughs> back and uh, everything is going to be fine. Like he's going to go for a long weekend. Like it's one thing if Werner is like going to run away. All right, I will go back to Germany. Everything will be fine. I'll never see these people ever again. And maybe there's a chance that they could pull that off. Uh, but the, the idea of that he's going to have this long weekend and show up like nothing happened is insane. I'm worried that the lesson that Mike is going to take from this is that he was too nice, that he should never have put Werner in a bond where or a place where Werner felt they had bonded enough such that that would be appropriate. I think that's the lesson Mike is going to take from this, that he was too nice to Werner and that Werner at the end of the day, because he was too nice to him, felt like that was going to be something he could get away with uh, when it was all said and done. So I don't know. I don't know if that's the lesson Mike takes. from. I think it definitely is. Yeah, I'm worried that's the lesson Mike takes from it because a less human Mike uh, is a Mike that I think is less interesting on this show. Uh, but I do think Peter Gold has acknowledged that they're not sure how many episodes of this show are left. Uh, they think they're closer to the end than they are mm-hmm. the beginning, which is good. That means they won't have 10 seasons, but, uh, but <laughs> they don't know how many are left. And I think once you take Mike down that road, just like we see with Jimmy McGill, I mean, once you take the wind totally out of their sails in terms of a lot of their humanity then you have a lot less story left to tell and so that it will be interesting to see where that plays out with mike because he seems to be at the end of that for sure yeah at the end of the episode we have this scene where we go back to the super lab um and uh we see gail there actually before we go and go into that uh let's let's talk through the actual uh death of Werner because i thought that that was a such an emotional roller coaster Definitely. The, as I said, and then we'll come back to Yale. Werner goes through the seven stages of grief um, with denial and bargaining and acceptance and anger and all these things. And it is, it is rough. Mike, Mike, I think what we're talking about, Mike wants to know, like, what was your end game? Like, what did you think was going to happen here? And when Werner tells him, Mike, I think can only interpret that as like, because Werner says, right? Like, I thought my friend Michael would be very angry at me, but, and he would come to understand. And it's like, no, you never had that on the table. Right. Yeah. And Werner should have known that, but Mike would have still done it a different way. I mean, that's the other thing that plays out here, right? Is that, as we said, Mike negotiates or tries to negotiate on Werner's behalf twice with Gus in this episode, even right before Mike is like, I'd do another way, I'd go another way. And Gus like that much I know, but uh, this conversation has no point. So Gus is going to do what Gus is going to do. And he's different than Mike in a lot of respects. So I, Mike is not totally busted out here and he's willing to own it, but the conversation is still rough. It's hard to watch. It was yeah. hard to watch the first time. It was hard to rewatch. It was just, it's not pleasant. And the, when Werner, when Mike makes Werner call his wife so that Werner's wife doesn't ultimately venture out into the great beyond and get murdered herself, um, that conversation is so rough, Rob. I, it was hard to watch. Mm-hmm. 
Who is Mike more concerned about? Is he worried about that Lalo is going to be waiting there or he's worried that Gus, Gus's guys are going to be there? I think he's worried about Gus's guys being there for sure, because I don't think he can guarantee that Gus would have called off the dogs on her. If she never shows up, she goes back to the airport. Fine. I I feel like Um, he's more worried about uh, Lalo's guys, but I think that there is a, you know, non-zero chance that Gus also says to uh, wipe out uh, Mrs. Werner. Yeah, because Gus's plan, right, is that he says, like, she's landing on a Lufthansa flight in eight hours, nine hours, and we're going to, and Mike's like, so then you're going to tailor, you're going to find out wherever he is, she's going to go there, and then what? You know, he knows that the plan that Gus has is to kill Marguerite, as it were. That's going to be, that's going to, that's going to be what happens. And so when Gus says, you know, wait there, no, no, don't bring him in. Wait there. We'll come to you. I think Gus can only, or Mike can only assume that Gus is on the warpath for Marguerite and Werner at that point still. So I think he's trying to take her off the table for whoever. Lalo could be part of it as well. Uh, Lalo clearly got the dime, you know, got the dime on, uh, he, on whatever was going on. He knew exactly where Werner was staying. Uh, and Mike knows that. So he doesn't know what could happen if she ends up there. Uh, better to just send her back to the airport for everyone's sake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the many different stages this took from when, you know, uh, Werner is going to realize uh, what is going to happen to having to uh, call his wife and then seeing that whole conversation. Uh, The actual scene where uh, Mike has to uh, cap uh, Werner also I I thought was uh, beautifully shot. Definitely. It's shades of the Godfather uh, hmm. with everything that happened. Take the cannoli. Uh, like definitely that sort of extended long shot. But the nightscape is so beautiful. Werner looking at the stars is a gorgeous, uh, gorgeous way to die for sure. Yeah. What do you think is the ultimate damage from the conversation that uh, Werner has with Lalo? I mean, what does Lalo have enough uh, pieces to put together to figure out what Gus is up to? I don't think so, but Gus has enough pieces to put together to know what Lalo is up to. And that part is, I think, the ultimate damage is that Mike does tip him off. He says to Gus, hey, there was somebody who called him on the phone and was pretending to be one of your crew like this all happened. What, what you know, do you know who that might be? And Gus is like, I have an idea. So Gus knows it's Lalo and Gus knows that Lalo is up to something uh, with the piece from this finale that we didn't get, Rob. Uh, that it's sort of surprising, but they've done the same thing with Mike in the past. No Nacho in the finale. Uh, that story's still to come. Nacho being caught between Lalo and the Salamanca crew. And Nacho got uh, shut out. Last season, Mike got shut out, so it's not... That's, yeah, there it is. Like, that that has happened. So that's what's going to happen. I think that, the, that Nacho's going to be caught between those two crews, uh, between Gus and the Salamancas, and that story will be a big part of what we see in season five, for sure. Uh, and I think that's the ultimate fallout from this, is that Gus is on to Lalo now. Uh, not that he already wasn't on his radar, but now he knows he's making overt moves to try to get more information about his organization. That cannot spell anything good. So the, the true casualty in that may end up being Nacho. We shall see. Okay. Let's talk about uh, that scene with Gail in the super lab because Antonio, I'm a little confused why this uh, particular scene was in the episode. Well, it's a, it's. I think in some ways, I think it's to seed us in the possibility of 
what comes next for that lab. Uh, we're getting another cameo there with Gail. The other thing is there are a lot of similarities and I, this is just going to be in breaking bad spoiler territory here, but there are a lot of similarities I think between Werner and Gail in terms of these innocent people or, or not innocent people, criminal people who were involved in that lab and the construction or the building of that lab, or in Gail's case, the building and the use of that lab, um, who were ultimately casualties to that lab. And they, you, you go right from the scene of Werner being shot uh, to Gail in the lab. And so I think the, the character parallels are, are, pretty, are pretty on point in terms of this sort of babe in the woods, like trusting, not monstrous criminal uh, who's playing a part in this criminal enterprise, but is not like the people that they're participating with and probably doesn't realize how in over their head that they are. Uh, I think that Gail and Werner are very similar. They suffer similar fates. Um, they suffer similar fates uh, in many respects for similar reasons. So it is, uh, it is all part of, I think this larger story and that, that along with them, I think wanting to use uh, the actor who plays Gail whenever they can get him since he's on billion, as well, um, wanting to seat this lab in terms of its context in the larger story uh, and place it there. And this is a lab that's being built for Gale. Now, it seems like it's clear, uh, not being built for Walter or for any other individual. It's being built for Gale to use, and Gus is not going to let him use it until it's complete. Uh, and we're going to see how that story changes throughout the course of this timeline uh, in into the Breaking Bad timeline. But this is, a, this, is a, this is what the lab is. I mean, this lab sees a lot of death, causes a lot of death. Um, it's built by a man named Werner and destroyed by a man named Heisenberg, uh, which is something that someone sent me from Reddit. It. So it is a, uh, this is a lab. So this is, this is a huge part of the, the breaking bad canon. And I think putting Gale in that lab and comparing him, I think contrasting him to Werner is part of that. So to have Gale down there, uh, Gale like wants to, you know, he's impressed. He thinks that they could do a rudimentary cook. Gus says, no, we're not, we're not doing that. So what, what is the next step now for the super lab? How, how do we get from where it is now to ultimately where it will be? The South Wall, Rob, obviously, that's what Werner was telling Lalo. Uh, I think we have to pour some concrete in there for sure is the next step. And I think the step after that is uh, set up all the ventilation systems like Gail was talking yeah, but about. But who will be responsible for that? Different team, sounds like. A different team's going to pour the concrete in there. I don't know if it'll be the French guy. I don't know if you need as complicated a team. You've got some plans that Werner left behind. Uh, and I think once those plans are executed, I don't, I don't know uh, that you need the full team for concrete pouring. I think these guys were uh, into demolitions and excavations and making sure the thing didn't fall in on itself. Um, once that's built out and it sounds like it's almost done. Uh, it, the next step is the concrete pouring. I don't know what kind of team they need for well, that. If you Gus, need the same team or I, not. I didn't want to say anything, but I did build a carport one time. <laughs> <laughs> I know a little bit about concrete pouring. Yeah, we could see that happen. We could see that happen. Uh, Mike will uh, carve his name in the floor in one of the corners, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Put his handprints in there. Uh, you know, I just I really enjoyed all of the stuff with the with the Germans. I, I thought it was very tense all season long. But, you know, now like the actual construction of the super lab, I do feel like that that is the most boring part of this. So if this is going to be a plot now of who will come in and now, uh, you know, finish this contracting job, I don't think that that is super interesting. 
Uh, maybe they'll do a spinoff, like a reality show, where they're trying out different contracting. Who wants to flip this lab, Rob? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we'll see something like that. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I don't know that they... I mean, they'll find a way. If you told me at the beginning of the season that they would find a way to make a who builds the lab story interesting, I would have said you're crazy. So I think we're in good... Uh, I think we're in good uh, position there. But uh, but I, I we'll see. I mean, I don't want it to be like, yeah, who's pouring this concrete? Like I said, we don't know when the lab actually starts, so it could start later. It could start now. I mean, Gail was ready to cook now. So TBD, I think, on the lab. Uh, and if anybody has any questions or feedback about what they think is next for the lab, please send them our way and we can talk about it. Um, but I don't know. I just don't know exactly where we'll go with that. I'm trying to think if there's any crews or people that, that we have to bring in. Uh, we haven't seen some of these people from Breaking Bad that we might see that are in the game, but none of them are construction people. So who knows? Who knows where this goes? Maybe it'll be chicken batter, Rob. Maybe that's what they'll use. <laughs> yeah, that would be an ideal. Is it, You could double yeah. as spackle. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, I was just really surprised. I read the uh, Entertainment Weekly review of uh, the episode, uh, and which is uh, the title is, This season, the worst part of Better Call Saul was Breaking Bad, uh, written by uh, Darren uh, Franick. And he, uh, you know, talks about how that the stuff with Jimmy and Saul, uh, that stuff was, you know, really great. But, uh, you know, calls the Super Lab storyline from the season, you know, uh, like the worst, uh, like fan servicey type stuff. Uh, he uh, compares it to Rogue One and these uh, conversations from clerks about all of the workers who uh, died blowing up the second Death Star. <laughs> we were watching like uh yeah like drones just build this thing mm-hmm. yeah so uh i guess this was not well received by everybody uh, people are gonna have the things that they like and don't like about the show uh people are gonna there are some people who like this better than breaking bad there are some people who i know had this finale at the top of their episodes list of better call Saul. I think all of that is valid because you should like what you like. I thought personally that the lab stuff was fun. Like you, I was wondering what the other shoe was going to be on all of this. It became clear. I think by the end of that last episode, not even by the end of the last episode, it became clear that I think Werner was marking time as a character on the show, that he was probably going to die before the end of the season. The question was how, uh, and this is the most uh, impactful way from a character standpoint for the characters that we have left on the board. I don't know that the crew should be sent home. I guess the idea is they're probably not going to work since they killed their boss. But on the other hand, I mean, maybe there is some, there's some, maybe they, you know what the show does more than anything, Rob, is if they like an actor, they find a way to bring him back. So maybe they liked Ben Bella boom enough that they're going to bring him back as Kai. Who knows? <laughs> maybe but i i would be very surprised if we see kai without the rest of the german workers you know it is interesting you know that uh verna left behind instructions on what they needed to do i, I mean why couldn't mike go back and tell the uh german workers okay verna he went rogue he left but we're gonna finish the job you'll be well paid I suppose he could. I think that Werner only left, if I'm not wrong, I think Werner only left instructions for three or four days worth of work, though. Mm-hmm. So I don't know ultimately how that plays out. Uh, so I think I think what we've got is we've only got three or four days of plans. And I think that past that. But, they're but Werner be, has no number two. Like what happened if Werner was killed on the job? You know, it's a dangerous job. I mean, Kai was the demolition question. guy that they needed him, but it seemed like his part was over. 
It's a good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, he, he put Kai forward as the guy who could also be a guy who worked on him. So there you go. Uh, I don't know if that was a good choice. Uh, I think that choice hurt him at the end of the day. So uh, there I said at the end of the day, I'm going to take a drink every time I say at the end of the day today. So if anyone else is doing that, that's like five or six drinks. You take lots now. of drinks today. Yeah. At the end of, at the end of the day, I'm going to Rob. <laughs> Yeah, um, you and I back in the first episode of uh, this podcast season talked about uh, the over under on scenes between oh, no. Jimmy and Mike in this season. And uh, we talked about how was there one or two scenes together in season three? I think there was just one. I think Jimmy asked Mike to go uh, steal the Hummel figure. And Mike said, this isn't something I want to do. And frankly, it isn't something you should do. Yeah. So but that was it in this a, season. I was trying, I was going back to last season. Was there oh, one or two? Season. Oh, my gosh. Um, I think so. Mike had Jimmy do some recon for him uh, and he brought him into the car uh, and had him doing scouting at Los Pollos Hermanos. I'm trying to think of any other Jimmy and Mike scenes from last season. Um, I don't remember how that played out, but Jimmy had Mike do the scouting of Chuck's house uh, mm-hmm. for trying to figure out how that all oh, yeah. worked. Yeah. So, and I think Mike maybe was there uh, for some of that. So there were a couple for sure. Yeah. The lantern. So there, there was a couple for sure. Cause I think when Mike is delivering the goods on that, you know, he's handing Jimmy the pictures at the diner and Jimmy's like, Oh, a lantern on top of a financial times. That whole picture tells the story. So I know they had that scene as well. So there were at least two, uh, were there, was there maybe one or two more? I don't know, but we're, we're certainly less than last season. Yeah. And I don't even remember if our uh, over under was one and a half or two and a half, but either I way, two and a half. I, I took the under yeah, and uh, it came in at one. Yeah, I'm going to have to tweet something embarrassing to Dean Norris. I'll figure this out. <laughs> you get to follow me and Dean Norris on Twitter if you want to see that in your timeline some point in the next couple of days. <sighs> <sighs> okay. Uh, oh, boy. He wh- asked for it. Now he's going to get it. I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it out. Uh, anything else from the finale? I I just was really I was really let down uh I was really let down by by what happened with Werner not let down in terms of disappointed in the show just let down emotionally just a real bummer uh and I think probably I when I thought about it in terms of the entire breaking bad universe I'm not sure that I've been more uh, upset by a death, uh, even though I knew this one was coming. Yes, I know there are some way more horrific ones in terms of the ages of the people that are involved uh, or the level of the characters that are involved. Uh, but this is just something that that scene between Mike and Ver- the actor was so good uh, who played Werner. And I think they learned a great lesson uh, in this season of Better Call Saul. And I think we're seeing it uh, with with Lalo. And I think we saw it with Werner is that they're casting native speakers of these languages that they're asking them to speak on the show. So Werner was a German language actor. Uh, this is a guy who I think we'll probably see a lot more working in English language roles now, but this is a, this is a guy who was not known as a guy who worked in English TV and film. Uh, this is a German actor. Uh, and I think the same thing goes with Lalo, like we talked about last week. So I, that for me as an American audience member, it's very refreshing to see faces that you don't know uh, because this guy, I don't know where he's at in terms of like, is he the best actor in Germany? Is he one of the best? Uh, he's the best. Probably, 
there you go. We'll just say he's the best. There are so many talented people out there in the world that we, if they're not speaking our primary language, just don't get a chance to see. And so getting to see an actor like this uh, play that role and that final scene, uh, he just, he crushed it. So all credit to Rainer Bach it. for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll stay crushing it. All credit to Rainer Bach for that. All credit to Tony Dalton for Lalo. I'm a big fan of uh, the camera, uh, the or the casting that they that they did with the, those two roles this season, especially. So really, really bummed out by that death, and that's going to be my main takeaway from this finale. Uh, the the work of the the main cast also obviously fantastic. Um, Ray Sehorn uh, got so much to do. Uh, Ray Seahorn got so much to do in this finale in terms of playing that. And even though uh, the character, I, I'm not sure ultimately uh, her through line is something I approve of uh, her work in that scene. You can pinpoint the moment where Jimmy kicks her in the stomach uh, when he, they're walking down that hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can pinpoint the moment where she buys into his speech in the courtroom. So such great work by her on this show throughout, but especially in this episode. So uh, a lot of credit to these actors, a lot of credit to people involved in creating the show. Uh, I thought, was this the best season of Better Call Saul, Ram? You know, I really, I think I might have enjoyed this one uh, the most. And I know we were uh, down on, or at least I was down on it in uh, the beginning in terms of being slow. But uh, this back half, uh, I, I felt like very uh, energized by the show. Me too, uh, for sure. And I think that the show is is in an interesting place as we enter season five. And I, I'm looking forward to talking more about it on the feedback show because there are a lot of different options that we have. We talked throughout the season. Do we go into full gene territory at some point? We did something in this season where we flashed forward into Breaking Bad timeline and we saw the scene in the Saul Goodman office uh, with Saul and Francesca and the shredding and getting out of town. So we are we are doing things on this season of A Better Call Saul that we haven't done before. And the opportunities for next season, I think, are pretty clear. I'm excited by the fact that there may be talking about the end game a little bit more actively and they're considering how many more episodes they might think are on the table. I think them trying to conceive how that's going to look can only spell good things for this show. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're going to find ways to do that. They have some regrets from breaking bad. Um, Vince Gilligan greatly regrets putting the, uh, the the machine gun at the in the trunk of the car at the beginning of season five. As he said, think of all the things we could have done if we never put that machine gun in there. So I think they learned some lessons. So from breaking they, they felt boxed in by that. Yes. Yes, they did. Mm-hmm. So I think they felt they felt box cuttered in. So I think <laughs> they felt uh, they've, they've, they've learned some lessons from that. And so they're throwing little bones out there. Like Jimmy saying to Francesca, here's who sh- you should call if you need an attorney uh, and tell him Jimmy sent you, but they're not boxing themselves in on anything. And all they're really boxed in on is that Gene makes it to this point and where they go from here. I think they're cognizant of how they feel about what they did in that, in that breaking bad final stretch and i think they're aware of what they can do in this final stretch if they put their minds in front of it far enough out in advance so uh, i think that can only spell good things for the future of better call saul i'm looking forward to uh hearing what other people's theories are on what they might want out of a season five that's what i'm most curious about we you talked about the entertainment weekly writer being a little let down by this season 
I'm most curious, or, or that particular, the Breaking Bad elements of it. I'm I'm most curious about what people want out of season five of Better Call Saul. We we're, we've got Jimmy McGill to the place we've got him. Uh, we've got him and Kim at the place we have them. We know what Mike is now and what Mike has done. Uh, what do we want out of a fifth season of Better Call Saul? What what are people's expectations? Um, that's interesting to me. So I'm looking forward to hearing what people might say. Do you think that we have one more season of the show or do you think two or more? I think probably two uh, at the least. And I think what we could be setting up is a season five that sets up some kind of supersized final season uh, where we do maybe like a 14 episode order and split it seven and seven. Yeah. You know, like Breaking Bad had done or like uh, like like Mad Men did. Like we I think AMC is in favor of these things sometimes. So we might see something like that. Uh, but I, I think we're so we're uh, probably, it's, it's the final season, but final season A and final season B. Right. Uh, so I think maybe we have we have the penultimate season will be next season and then final season A and final season B. I would say I would set the over under a total better call Saul episodes left at. 25 25 oh i i yeah. take the under there you would take the under there okay well that's that, my move and that's a that's not a that's not a bad move i think that mm-hmm. for me that's the question i think that's the question are they going to do a full season five and then just a full season six which would be 20 episodes and yeah. call it or are they going to do a full season five and then something more than a full season six, which would be in the 25 yeah. episode or more territory? I would put the over under. I think I would have set it at 16 and a half. So you think a full you think two eight episode seasons, maybe? I think that that's probably I don't think that they'll end it in 10. I think that the the, the minimum is uh, the question going to be, will they do some sort of like eight and eight? Okay. Well, or twenty, or maybe I'd go twenty and a half. Of like, uh, could there be? Will there be more than two seasons left? That uh, that is a uh, it's a good question, and we don't know. So I think I'm curious as to what other people's views on this are. I think I want it to be where you're saying I would like it to be two full seasons and that's done. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that that's what we'll get. I don't I think, think the actors get- like it when they do the eight and eight because they just pay them for one season. Like the actors all get a pay increase per season. And then when they say, no, it's all season five, then even though it's 16 episodes over two years, then I think that uh, like so I don't know if too many shows do that now. I and I think that's probably why the networks want to do it in many respects. So it is You'll a push for sure. From my agent. Do you think that this is a? I mean, this is this is a. It's a. It's a question. Like, do you think that they have any concerns about that sort of thing? That uh, that they might lose actors, or that they need to strike while the iron is hot on this, and they can't kick the can so far down the curve because, or so far down the road because. We have a through line for some of these people uh, into Breaking Bad. So you can't really write them out of Better Call Saul if they show up later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you at some point you're you're playing with fire. If you say it doesn't even have to be an actor of a certain age. You don't have to be talking about Mike like you're saying. Um, it could be anybody. It could be anybody like you could say. Uh, I mean, Bob Odenkirk might not. So like you just don't know. Like we're not. I don't think to Bob tomorrow. Odenkirk is, uh, you know, going to have a, has a different project he needs to get to instead of Better Call Saul. You could die, though, is what I'm saying. Well, like, he could, he's uh, not he could, the, the cast member I'd be worried about with that. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you have to at some point you have to consider you can't drag this out forever because you, you, mm-hmm. you need to at least get yourself to a point where 
I, I mean, I suppose that they could they could just end the show if they had something like that happen and say, you know what, like this is where we fill in the blanks on your own from there. We did the best we could to give you a lot of the backstory of what happens with these characters. They're just getting so heavily into Breaking Bad territory that you can't really fundamentally alter the timeline of Breaking Bad. So you're going to at some point you're going to say, OK, we've got it all. Like we're not going to try to worry about getting any more out of these actors. So. All right. All right. Antonio, great work covering the finale. We will get back to your feedback questions. BCS at postshowrecaps.com. Probably sometime early next week for that. You can also leave us comments on postshowrecaps.com in the post for this episode of the podcast. Of course, uh, a very happy birthday to AC Mazzaro on Twitter with two Z's and one R. I'm at Rob Sestrino. Antonio, anything else? That's it from me, Rob. Uh, Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to the feedback show. Josh and I are back on the uh, Game of Thrones uh, talking about uh, season five, episode six. Uh, Not the most popular episode of Game of Thrones, but we're back on the rewatch. And then Jessica Lisa and I covered the season nine premiere of another AMC standout, The the Walking Dead, over on PostShowRecaps.com. So be on the lookout for that. PostShowRecaps.com slash iTunes for everything that we're doing. Take care, everybody. Uh, Thanks for listening to our coverage of Better Call Saul podcast uh, all season long. I know that there were some bumps in the road, not unlike making a super lab. You know, it's not a straight line in podcasting sometimes. Yeah, we had to excavate that one chamber and blow the rock up. Yeah, we had all that. Nobody could find me for a little bit. So it was, (laughs) uh, you know, not completely dissimilar. So just wanted to see your wife, Rob. Yeah. So thank you for your patience and hanging in there with us. Hope you guys enjoyed the finale coverage. We'll be back uh, next week to talk about everything uh, from the finale in the season and beyond with you. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. It's Vita saying. 